0: Let me propose to you two scenarios and see which one you would choose. Option one is being restricted in what you can do and where you can be, but you are provided three free full meals a day. You are even provided free snacks. You are given free use of -of state-of-the-art exercise equipment. You have free educational opportunities up to the graduate level. You have free access to medical procedures and visits with doctors. You get free clothes, and you have free living essentials, free television, free movies, free books, free cable, free Netflix, free electricity, and free air conditioning, and you don't have to work at all. Now, here's the second option. You have complete freedom to do whatever you want to do legally, whenever you want to do it, and wherever you want to do it. But you have to wake up early to go to work, and you have to work hard to earn enough money for your own food. Everything is out-of-pocket expense for you. You have to pay for your own meals, your own gym membership, your own education, your own clothes, your own entertainment, your own electricity, and your own access to medical treatment. Which would you choose? I think given those options, perhaps many of us would choose scenario or option one. But you know, if you choose option one, you would have just chosen prison. Over option two which is living in freedom if given the choice between living in prison and living in freedom i think most of us would choose to live in freedom even if we had to work hard for the amenities that those in prison receive because freedom is so precious and yet so many christians today live as if they choose to live in spiritual prison when they have obtained spiritual freedom John Stott tells the story in his book, The Living Church Convictions of a Lifelong Pastor, of a man by the name of Louis Delcourt. He was a young French soldier during World War I who overstayed his leave and, fearing disgrace, he decided to desert. He persuaded his mother to lock him up in the attic of their home, and there she hid him and fed him for 21 years. But in August of 1937, his mother died. And there was no chance now of him remaining in hiding. And so, pale and haggard, he staggered to the nearest police station where he gave himself up. The police officer looked at him and, in utter incredulity, asked him, Have you not heard? Have you not heard? There is a law for amnesty for all those who deserted and it was passed years ago. Louis Delcourt had freedom but did not enjoy it because he didn't know he had that freedom. It is the same with many Christians today. We have been set free by Jesus Christ, but we are not enjoying the freedom that comes with it because we don't know we have it or we don't know much about our freedom in Christ. That's what we want to explore today as we continue our sermon series in the book of Galatians. We want to talk specifically about our freedoms in Christ and what those freedoms actually are. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, as we take a look at verses 1 to 15. Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. As you're turning to this passage, remember, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian Christians because they had been fooled by the Judaizers who were teaching a false gospel. And their false gospel was that Christians needed to observe Jewish customs and obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved or in order to maintain their salvation. The Apostle Paul's point was that this put the Christians under bondage, and that salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's sovereign grace alone. Therefore, it is foolish for the Galatians to embrace these self-imposed unbiblical rules when they could enjoy the freedoms they had in Christ. Look at me at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. In this one verse, the Apostle Paul summarizes what he had been advocating, and that is that the Galatian Christians were not to be caught up again, in the bondage of legalism because they had already been freed from the bondage of sin through the work of the great liberator, Jesus Christ, who had brought freedom to them. I think at times it's hard for us to understand what a great truth this is because most all of us have never been imprisoned or we've never been a slave with no hope of freedom. Can you imagine being a slave knowing that you have no hope of ever being free because there is no way for you to buy your freedom. There is no way for you to buy yourself out of bondage because the work you do for your master earns nothing. And then knowing that the children born to you would be under the bondage of slavery, imagine the depth of hopelessness and the great desire for freedom. Similarly, all of us were enslaved to sin with no hope of ever gaining freedom. And yet in mercy and in compassion, Jesus gave His life for us, purchasing our salvation by shedding His blood on the cross. And we are now free from sin. And that freedom doesn't mean that we should do whatever we want to do. Instead, it should motivate us to live for Jesus, how Jesus wants us to live with the truth of our freedom in Christ. Just as the freed slaves would never ever want to become a slave again, so also the Christian with freedom in Christ should not desire bondage to sin and legalism. Look at verses 2 and 3. Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor, to keep the whole law. Here Paul warns the Galatian Christians from undergoing the Jewish custom of circumcision, which they were considering doing, thinking that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved or to maintain their salvation. Paul said that Christ will profit you nothing, meaning you will minimize the salvific work of Christ when you participate in circumcision, thinking it leads to salvation. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with circumcision. You can discuss with your doctor the medical pros and cons of this procedure. What Paul was addressing here is the false theology that the Jewish custom of circumcision, along with other rituals, were needed for salvation and therefore added a works component to salvation. Paul then adds in verse 3 that if they were to go down this path, they would be putting themselves under bondage again Because, you see, you can't just pick one of the components of the law to follow in order to be saved. You would be obliged and obligated to obey the entire law, the whole law, all parts of it. That's why the Bible says we become debtors to it. For example, when you're driving and you want to claim that you are driving legally, you have to conform to all the rules that the law demands, such as wearing your seatbelt, driving the speed limit, not entering the bus lane stopping at the red light. It's certainly not an option for you to pick and choose just one rule and perhaps just say, I put on my seatbelt and run all the red lights you want and then say, but I'm still driving legally. You must be complicit and comply with all the laws. Similarly, if you're going to say that circumcision is part of being saved, then you have to add the other parts of the Jewish law, like not eating pork or shellfish or worshiping strictly on Saturdays. And it follows that you do not have freedom in Christ anymore because now you are obligated to follow all the law in order to maintain your salvation. But we know that salvation is only through faith alone and Christ alone who died in our place. We simply place our complete trust in His finished work on the cross and believe that His redemptive blood saves us by the washing away of our sins so that we can receive salvation and eternal life. So if anyone says to you that you need to do this or you need to do that in order to be saved, apart from placing your trust in the Lord, then you know that they are advocating for something that is not biblical. Remember, my friends, salvation is a free gift, There are no extra requirements for what you need to do in order to be saved. There are no other obligations. You don't owe anyone anything for your salvation. You see, in Christ, we have number one, the freedom of owing nothing. The freedom of owing nothing. The things that the Bible tells us we are to do as a Christian is part of our sanctification, not part of our justification, We do these good works as a Christian in order to please God, to earn heavenly rewards. We don't do it in order to be saved. You see, the freedom to owe nothing is a wonderful freedom. Let me illustrate this to help you understand this great truth. Let's say you take your three children to an amusement park where the admission price to enter is $10 per person. You are poor and barely make ends meet but you want to see your children happy, and so you take them to the amusement park because they have been clamoring to go, and you spend all of your money simply on the entrance tickets. But inside the theme park, you are shocked to find out that you have to spend $5 per person per ride, and you've costed it out in your head, and you realize for every meal, every snack, you have to spend at least $20 for your family. And yet you see your children, they are excited, and they want to ride all the rides multiple times, and they want to eat all the food that they see. And so you struggle with wanting your children to enjoy their time in the park, but you worry about what you will owe to the credit card company at the end of the trip. You give in to the happiness of your children, and you rack up more than $300 of expenses, both of food and rides, which you know you don't have money to pay for. If I were to ask you if this was your situation, did you enjoy your time in the theme park while you were there? You'd probably say no. How can you enjoy your time when in the back of your mind you have so many obligations? You owe the credit card company money that you don't have. But let's say instead that you go to the amusement park and you pay $10 per person for the admission fee, and you find out that all the rides and all the food are free. There are no hidden costs. And once you step foot inside the theme park, you don't have to worry about anything. You can enjoy the freedom that comes with eating whatever you want and allowing your children to ride all the rides that they want multiple times you see that there is a big difference. If you were to be asked in this second scenario, are you happy? Did you enjoy your time at the theme park? You would say, absolutely. Because during my time there, I owed nothing to anyone. And that's how the Christian life is to be lived. Remember, the Bible tells us your debts have been paid in full. The book of Colossians reminds us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, these words. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. While these verses are not to give us a license to sin more. As a Christian, you and I need to understand that we have the freedom to enjoy salvation free, because when we place our trust in Jesus, we owe God nothing. The price of our sin has been paid in full when Jesus Christ went to the cross. We are also free from sins hold on us. And when we recognize this fact and live like we know the truth, it is a rather freeing experience. Look at me at verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Paul continues by saying that the Galatians, who believed that they had to follow certain Jewish customs to be saved or to maintain their salvation, had become estranged from Christ. There was an alienation, there was a separation from Him, there was a tension a fundamental lack of seeing things eye to eye as He does, which results in a strain on the relationship. Just like if a wife is estranged from her husband, it means that they are not in a relationship because they disagree on certain things. Here in this situation, the believer is alienated, is estranged from Christ because Christ operates by His grace. And the believer is wanting to live under laws and obedience to the law by good works for their salvation instead of grace. Look at verse 4, the phrase falling away from grace does not mean one loses their salvation if there is this estrangement. It just means that the believer has chosen to live under a system of law leaving the system of grace. As a believer who estranges themselves from Christ over how they choose to live, they will not be able to enjoy grace. Look at verses 5 and 6. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Here in verses 5 and 6, Paul contrasts the legalists who are living in an estrangement from Christ to those who live in freedom under grace those who live under grace will continue to have a more positive outlook because they can eagerly anticipate the hope of righteousness, meaning waiting for the time when Christ will come and we will be glorified as believers, fulfilling the big picture of salvation, from justification to sanctification to glorification. Now, those who put themselves under the law often look only to the fulfillment of that law Or where they've done a good work and then they pat themselves on the back. Well, I've done it. God must be pleased. They completely miss the great hope that comes with those who place their trust in Jesus. They only see the trees. They they, they move from one good work to another. They pat themselves on the back when they have fulfilled the law. But they miss out on the beautiful, complete picture of what salvation brings. It's like these crazy parents who go to a kid's basketball game for children age five and six. And they are yelling and screaming because the children on the opposite team are not following all the rules. Some are double dribbling, some perhaps traveled a bit, and the referees aren't being fair, and they're not calling all the penalties on these beginning players. They feel somehow that their child is cheated upon, they completely miss the fact that these little children are just learning to enjoy the wonderful game of basketball, that they are there to build up their athleticism. And part of children playing in a team is to learn what it means to be a good sport, about camaraderie and supporting one another. And yet they want to be such sticklers for the rules and the penalties that they completely miss out on the bigger picture, especially as it relates to little children. If we were to see these parents, our heads would shake because we would say, look at these crazy parents, so caught up in the fairness and obeying all the rules that they don't allow their children to enjoy the game. In verse six, Paul says, it's not really even about circumcision, It's about genuine and saving faith as evidenced in love, not a faith that is evidenced through compulsory work or forced action or forced good works. These verses capture the idea that, number two, in Christ, we have the freedom to enjoy grace. We have the freedom to enjoy grace, especially when we choose to live under grace. I think the idea of enjoying grace is something that we often don't fully understand. In fact, it's really hard to enjoy grace because a part of us doesn't want to receive so-called handouts. We don't want to owe anyone anything, even God. We don't want to owe God anything. We want to be able to do it by ourselves and and claim credit that we had a part in our accomplishments, even in our salvation. So we shift our relationship with Christ out of a grace system and into a very incompatible work system. That's why when one's faith walk is based on works and is task-oriented, then you will always feel guilty when you're not doing something or anything that is of spiritual value in your mind. How many times do we look at other Christians and we see what great accomplishments that they have done for the Lord And then we compare it with how little we have done and we feel sad and we feel guilty and we feel that we don't measure up. You know, you and I really shouldn't because of God's grace. Now, we should use the spiritual accomplishments of others to encourage us to do things for the Lord, but not to guilt us into comparison. You see, there's nothing you and I can do that will make God love you or love me more or less. His love is unconditional. And there's nothing you and I can do that will garner for us more of God's grace. His grace cannot be earned. It is freely given. And so that's why the sacramental system doesn't work. You and I cannot earn grace. Grace is freely given. So if you watch a movie or spend some time with friends or play board games or hang out or have fellowship, you know, it would be very easy for me to guilt you and condemn you and tell you, wouldn't your time be better spent perhaps evangelizing or reading the Bible or praying? What you're doing is a waste of time. Jesus wouldn't be pleased. But that is me using legalism and the law to guilt you. As Christians, you and I have the freedom to enjoy grace. You can't pay back grace, and you can't earn more of it. If You are recipients of God's grace, then enjoy it. If God has given you material blessings by His grace, enjoy it. James chapter 1, verse 17 tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above. And when we enjoy God's blessings through His grace, then we need to remember to give things to Him, which also brings Him glory. This freedom to enjoy grace takes the pressure of what we call a performance-based Christian life. My friends, if you buy into a performance-based Christian life, it will make your life miserable. You will be pressured into going through the motions of having daily quiet time just to say you did it. You will rush through prayers before meals just so you can say, I prayed before I ate. You will pat yourself on the back that you've read the Bible within a year. But all those tasks do not equate with you having an intimate relationship with Jesus, or perhaps even understanding God's Word, or applying biblical principles in your life. Those are all simply tasks that do not necessarily speak of your spiritual maturity. But then we all get sucked into this performance-based, task-oriented Christian life, And then the stakes get higher in this performance-based Christian life. The pressure to now be a church leader. The pressure to lead a Bible study. To give offering every week. And somehow the pressure to, to be better than everyone else. And if we aren't, to feel guilty when we aren't. Now I know that spiritual disciplines are important. And we did a sermon series on them. But you don't need to beat yourself over your head if you miss a daily quiet time. Or perhaps you're so hungry you forgot to pray before you ate. You know, God is such a gracious God. God's love allows you to fall and fail and in no way affects His grace in your life. Let me repeat that. That's so important for you to understand. God's love allows you to fall and fail and in no way affects His grace in your life. If you live out a works-based, performance-based Christian life, you will expect everyone, like yourself, to be spiritually perfect. And so you will begin to judge them when they don't live up to the efforts that you're putting into the spiritual life. And you will be upset at them that they aren't progressing spiritually as fast as you are. Or perhaps they don't know the Bible as well as you do. And sadly, there are a lot of Christians like that, and they are very judgmental. I used to count myself as one of them. I did not understand what it meant to live under grace, and therefore I did not give grace to others as well. But when you begin to think about living under the system of God's grace, then you will begin to show grace to others. If not, you will turn the Christian life into a competition of who can obey the laws the best instead of, embracing and recognizing the freedom that we have to enjoy God's grace. The intimacy of a simple faith walk with God is the true basis of biblical spirituality. It is out of an intimate walk with God, with its ups and downs, that you live out the Christian life faithfully and you are willing to serve God and to love others. That all comes out of a grace-filled life. Remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? Martha is busily working up a storm to give Jesus the best of hospitality, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, Mary is just simply spending time at the feet of Jesus, talking to Him, listening to Him, and building into the relationship. Martha sees Mary not doing anything, and perhaps the anger in her heart begins to build up. And so Martha asks Jesus to tell Mary, to help her. Remember Jesus' response in Luke chapter 10, verses 41 to 42? And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Notice that Jesus doesn't condemn the good work of Martha. Martha, But He commended more the desire of Mary to spend time with Him. Similarly, your salvation and my salvation is not based on works. And so when we are saved, it doesn't mean that we need to work just so that Jesus will be pleased. In fact, Mary is simply enjoying a relationship with Jesus. And so enjoy God's grace in your life. Don't get caught up into a performance, work-based lifestyle as it relates to your Christian life. Just spend time with Him. That's what God loves. Now, this isn't a license to be lazy, but it should change your perspective about how you and I serve the Lord, to serve Him while enjoying His grace. It's not about the outcome or the results. It's about an intimate walk with Him. I remember the story of a 12-year-old who accidentally killed one of his family's geese by throwing a stone. Figuring his parents would not notice one of the 24 geese gone, he buried it. But his sister saw his crime and said, I saw what you did, and if you don't wash dishes for me, I'll tell mom and dad. Scared, the boy did dishes for days on behalf of his sister. One day, the boy said, I'm not going to do your dishes anymore, you do them. His sister said, I'll tell mom. The boy replied, I've already told her, and she forgave me. I'm free again. My friends, you are a child of God. He has forgiven you of your sins. Don't let anyone guilt you into bondage. You have the freedom to enjoy grace. You live your life not so that you can buy back your salvation, not so that you can make it up to God in some way, You will enjoy his grace. The things you do for the Lord is because of an overwhelming sense of appreciation in response to his amazing grace in your life. Look at verses 7 to 10. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord. That you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul now compared the Galatians' life as a race. They had begun the race well, but someone blocked or impeded their proverbial running. And those who impeded the spiritual race of the Galatians were the Judaizers, who kept them from living out the truth as they continued to spread their false gospel. Paul mentions that this false teaching wasn't from God and that this wasn't a small problem but a big one. Perhaps some of the Galatians thought that Paul was making a mountain out of a molehill. He was making such a big deal over in their mind a very small theological issue. They didn't want Paul to keep harping on it. Just let us get our circumcision. Let us follow the Jewish customs and the rules. What's the big deal? But for Paul, this was a big issue because it spoke to the core of the gospel message. In verse 9, Paul equates this issue with how a little yeast will work its way and affect the whole lump of dough. If you aren't familiar with baking, yeast or leaven is a type of fungi that will make your bread rise and make it fluffy. And so you knead the yeast into the dough. It is invisible to the eye, the the process of the fungi that works through the dough, but it eventually works its way through the entire dough batch, which allows it to rise and be fluffy. In the same way, Paul was saying this issue may seem small, but it will eventually work its way throughout one's theological framework and destroy one's view of grace. So, for example, you may think that the doctrine of inerrancy, the belief that the Bible is without error, is not important to hold you don't need to fight over it you say well maybe the bible has one or two errors or maybe three errors but you know they're minor errors and they don't matter much what it says about salvation is of course true but the other historical and and scientific stuff is not or perhaps you begin to doubt the biblical accounts of the creation of the world or the fall of man you take as a myth the story of Noah and the global flood, and you say, it's not important to hold these as truth. As long as we hold salvation as true, who cares about the other stuff? Well, then, my friends, you have fallen into Satan's trap because he loves to put doubt in our minds, even over the small things. So like leaven, like yeast, your confidence in God's word as truth is slowly shaken. Eventually, when you allow certain things to slip, you will not believe in what the Bible says about salvation as well. That's how something small and yet important, if you do not hold to it, will eventually affect your theological framework. Truth, especially biblical truth, is never to be compromised, however you think, inconsequential. But Paul was confident, as he writes in verse 10, that the Galatian Christians would come to the truth and that the ones who were spreading this false gospel would be dealt with and judged. In these verses, we see another one of our freedoms in Christ, and it is this, number three, the freedom to grow spiritually. The freedom to grow spiritually. Why? Because we have truth. When the Galatians were given false doctrines, false gospel, lies. The Bible tells us they were impeded. We can grow spiritually because we have the truth. What do I mean by this? You see, a lot of people often get caught up with doubt in their mind, even over the most basic of Christian faith matters. Am I really saved? Will God really forgive my sins? Is salvation really free and by faith? Are you sure I don't need to work for my salvation even a little? Does God really love me? Is Jesus even God? When we question the most basic of Christian truths, then every time we question, we essentially start over again in our spiritual lives. That's why we can't go on to deeper and more mature spiritual truths. Like the Galatians, we are impeded in our spiritual growth when we begin to doubt the truths of the scripture. But in Christ, when we are rock solid in holding on to the finished work of Christ according to the scriptures, and out of that comes the assurance of our faith and the security of our salvation, then we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear losing our salvations. We don't have to fear that God doesn't love us. The most basic of questions that we often repeat over and over throughout our lives has a final answer and we can build upon that and grow in spiritual maturity. You see, when we doubt and we fear, it takes us back to square one. And when we are brought back to the beginning, we cannot grow spiritually. We'll always be mired in not knowing, unsure of our faith. We'll never be rooted even in the basics of our Christian faith. This is why Paul says that the Galatians' spiritual race was impeded. They couldn't nail down even the basics. I see this too often with Christians who are new to the faith. I even see this in Christians who have been Christians for decades. They are rearing to go. They are on fire to share the gospel, and that's wonderful. They desire to live for Jesus until they meet a skeptic who asks them a question that they cannot answer, challenges them to one of the most basic of their beliefs, and then boom, it stops right there. They are shaken. It stops them right in their tracks, because they have not been fully rooted and grounded in God's Word and in His truth. Let me ask you one of these questions that often shakes many believers. How do you know if Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? Can you answer that if one of your friends who is an unbeliever or an atheist asks you that question, how do you know that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, to salvation, to have eternal life? Can you answer this most basic of questions? If your faith is fully rooted in Christ, if you can answer the most basic of questions, if you will not waver in these questions, basic truths of the scriptures, then you will have the freedom to grow spiritually in your faith. You will have the basics down and you can build upon those building blocks, these basic truths to learn even more about the wonderful grace of our Lord and the greater truth that the scripture reveals. The freedom to grow spiritually is because you and I have the truth and that truth begins with the most basic. You are a child of God when you place your trust in Christ. Your eternal security is set. So go out and grow in your faith. Have your basics covered. Don't keep going back to square one. Look at me at verses 11 to 12. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off some people actually propose that Paul was preaching what the Judaizers were teaching. But Paul refused this assertion and wrote that if it was so, then why is he being persecuted by the Judaizers if they were preaching and teaching the same thing? In verse 12, he wishes that the Judaizers who were polluting the gospel message would be cut off so that they wouldn't make any more trouble. But more importantly, Paul asserts that if I preach the false gospel like they did, then note this, the offense of the cross has ceased. Let's dig deeper into this statement. I hope you and I realize that the cross offends. And it offends because it reminds people that they are sinful. The cross reminds them that someone had to die in their place and that their sin, my sin, our sin, has put an innocent man to death. But Jesus willingly died for our sins to give us salvation. And we have no part in our own salvation. You and I could not save ourselves. And that is also the offense of the cross. That is what makes the cross of Christ so offensive to the world. It goes against everything that the world is saying. The world says you aren't too bad. In fact, you're a good person. You and I, as good people, wouldn't do that to an innocent person. There is no one that loving, the world says, or dumb enough to die for someone else because of the world's sense of fairness. And the world advocates in humanism that you are a pretty great person and you can save yourself. The cross offends the world's worldview. The only way to understand how the offense of the cross makes sense is through the lenses of God's grace. The world cannot explain why the God-man Jesus would die in our place. We can't explain it. It makes no sense. But it can be explained when we explain it through the lenses of God's grace. But yet it is still hard for us to accept because for many of us, We don't like accepting free things. And so we ask, what's the catch? Is there something more? And there is no catch. That is what exactly makes Christianity so unique. The work has already been done. You and I just need to receive the free gift of salvation. That's why there was a webinar recently between the advocates of Buddhism and Catholicism. And part of the conclusion was that both religions can live in harmony. They can be in harmonious relationship. And in many ways, it should not be surprising because in its simplest form, both advocate a salvation by doing good. Then you have the so-called born-again Christians or Protestant Christians. And we believe you can't do good works for your salvation because there's no amount of good works that can overcome your bad works. So, there wouldn't be much of a harmonious correlation between us and, let's say, Buddhism because the means of salvation is different. For us, the work has already been completed by Christ on the cross. For others, you need to obtain it through your good works. That is the offense of the cross. The work has already been done. There are no other religions in the world that offers any individual a free gift of salvation simply by believing that someone has already died in your place and paid the penalty of death that you and I deserve. Paul is saying the offense of the cross is diminish its stopped when you and I live out a works salvation. The sad reality is so many Christians in their desire to want to fit into the world or want to make Christianity mainstream, are dumbing down the exclusivity of the cross of Jesus Christ so that we can somehow be accepted by the world. My friends, hear this well and hear me clearly. The world will never accept Christianity as mainstream. Let me repeat that. The world will never accept Christianity as mainstream. They will never accept us as normal. Because the world is controlled by Satan, and he hates this saving truth. That is why he has made the truth of the cross so offensive to the world. And I hope you will come to this understanding that we will never be accepted, that we are unique in this world. And unless you and I realize this and accept this, then it will be very hard for us to live as salt and light in this world and make a difference that God desires for us to make. You see, in Christ, number four, we have the freedom to be different. The freedom to be different. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you and I become different. You and I become new creations in Christ. And since this is a generation that celebrates differences, as followers of Jesus Christ, You can do just that. You can celebrate your difference from the world. There is nothing mainstream about Christianity. It is counterculture. But in Christ, you and I have the freedom to be different. Embrace it. Accept it. So how you work in the business world, how you deal with other businessmen and women, you can be different. You don't have to. Practice as they practice. You don't have to be like everyone else. If you are a student or a parent helping your child studying online, you have the freedom to be different in how you take your test online and how you work on projects, and you can do so with integrity and without cheating, which I know many who don't know Christ are doing. But you and I have the freedom to be different. Bottom line, as Christ followers, We have the freedom to be different from the world, and it's okay. We should embrace the offensiveness of the cross. Finally, look at verses 13 to 15. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Finally, Paul reminds the Galatian Christians that liberty and freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Would you underline that in your Bible in verse 13? Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But in Christ, we have the freedom, number five, to love. The freedom to love. Here, Paul talks about the expression of this love in terms of serving others. In fact, in verse 14, Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which summarizes the law into a command to love your neighbors. And this love was needed because the Galatian church was divided, and Paul wanted to remind them about the unity that they needed to have once this issue was corrected. You see, as with any disagreement... Passions will be inflamed, and so they needed to love one another. In Christ, we have the freedom to love, because when our salvation is assured, when our eternal destiny is certain, we can love, we can give, we can serve others, because we already have everything we need in life. We don't have to be selfish. We don't have to work for ourselves, because we have it all in Christ. And so, our lives can be about giving and serving others. It is people who are scared of life, who are still trying to accumulate things in their life. It is people who are insecure of their significance. It is people who are unassured of their future that find it difficult to love and to serve others without strings attached because they are still somehow in a competition. When we know of our standing in Jesus Christ, the security of our salvation is set, then we have the freedom to love all types of people. Our standing in Christ will allow us to serve them in such a way that it is selfless. Because it doesn't matter the position or the wealth of the one we are serving who is an unbeliever. In fact, our hearts should go out to them because they are lost in darkness. And so even more, we will do whatever it takes even if they are our enemies, even if we don't like them, to show them love because we are the recipients of it when Jesus Christ died for us. The profound nature of our freedom in Christ is something that will require us to ponder on. In fact, you may be listening to this message and uh, it's so much that you may feel lost. You may have to listen to this message again, perhaps in parts. But my friends, let me encourage you, once you grasp the greatness of our freedom and our liberty in Jesus Christ, it would be foolish to want to return back into the bondage of sin and legalism. But remember, as it is often said, freedom is not free. Those living in countries where its citizens are free often have to understand that that freedom was given to that country through the spilt blood of many who died in defense of the country or fought for its liberty. In the same way, our Christian freedom isn't free. It costs the Son of God, Jesus Christ, His life so that we can enjoy freedom. So when you enjoy the freedom of owing nothing, the freedom to enjoy grace, the freedom to grow spiritually, the freedom to be different, the freedom to love. Remember that freedom that you enjoy cost Jesus Christ his life. So as you enjoy it, make sure you praise him. Make sure you thank him. And make sure you worship him. Go out, my friends, and enjoy the freedom you and I have in Jesus Christ. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words in this passage in Galatians. They are full of deep spiritual truth. I pray that each one of us would ponder upon the beauty of the freedom we have in you to thank and to praise and to worship you for the sacrifice you made on the cross so that we will live in freedom. And yet so many of us continue to live under the shackles of sin and legalism. I pray that the abundant Christian life would be ours as we embrace the freedom we have in you, not as a license to sin, but to show the world that a relationship with you does not constrict us to following a bunch of rules, but it assures us of our salvation and eternal life and henceforth will give us true joy and true gladness of heart. Bless your people as they have studied your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.